Hey, I want to begin by saying we want to make sure you are aware of when things take place here on Easter weekend. It's hard to believe that it is only a few weekends away until Easter. Spring is beginning to show up all around us. Uh, things are beginning to change. The, the trees have blooms and leaves are coming. It's a great time of the year. And it is also a great opportunity for you, if you haven't already, to step back in the room for Easter. Uh, you can do so on Saturday evening, uh, April 16th at 6 p.m. or on Sunday at 8.30, 9.30, and 11. Uh, those services on Saturday evening and the latter two on Sunday morning, 9.30 and 11, will all be the same. The one at 8.30 will be in our sanctuary. So just so you know, all that information will, will be back on our website soon. And you can keep reminding yourself as you go on to watch these videos that that is com coming soon. So Again, this is a great opportunity for you to step out of watching online, which we're grateful that you are doing, but back into the room. Let's pray before we continue in Philippians today. God, guide us to see uh, the, the weight and the promises of your word today, uh, the hope of your word today. Uh, may we uh, grasp this a little bit more than we had before, uh, but may, may it also leave us hungrier for your word because of what you have done for us. May we become, even as we see in some verses not in Philippians to get started today, may we become more desperate, more hungry, thirstier for your word and for becoming more like Jesus. Thank you, God, for this opportunity and for those listening and watching and being a part of this over these next few days. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Old Testament, there is a guy by the name of David. Maybe you've heard of him. He was a shepherd boy who turned giant slayer, who turned king, who turned adulterer, and yes, a murderer. Quite a way to begin a sermon, right? But David's journey is recorded for us in great detail in numerous moments in the Old Testament. It details about his rising to, kingdom, to a king, his temptations, his sinfulness, his brokenness, and his multiple rides on emotional roller coasters of life. At one point, David said the following words from Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, I've seen these first two verses as the deer pants for the water or the streams. I've seen these on t-shirts and maybe artwork for your home, and it looks peaceful and calm. Bambi is sitting beside a bubbling brook, and you get a warm, fuzzy feeling. I hate to tell you, that's not the reality of this passage. Here, the picture from David, he is at a point of desperation in his soul. He is empty. He's bankrupt. His soul is panting. Again, this is not a deer who has stumbled upon a stream, nestled on a hillside, gently taking a few sips of water. This is the most basic necessity of life met in desperation by David, living water. David is diligently searching for more of God to fill his most inward and empty places. 
In another psalm, David says this, Psalm 63, he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The two scriptures we just read from Psalm 42 and 63 are written from a man who in the end, following all of his earthly successes and his failures, had come to know that the only thing that could quench his emotional and spiritual thirst and all of his appetites was his relationship to God. He was desperate for a closer, deeper, more vibrant walk with the Lord. So Paul our writer of Philippians, has much of the same outlook as David. Paul, like David, has a resume that would be heralded by the world, yet it had led him to a point of emptiness. Now with brutal transparency and honesty, Paul is going to lead us to what he realized. Paul is no longer pursuing the moment. He's pursuing eternity. He has encouraged his friends at Philippi in our first two chapters. He's given them examples to follow who will deliver this message to them. And now he's going to turn to instruction. He says, finally, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Finally here does not mean the end. Rather, it is more or less Paul's way of saying, and now the rest of the story. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in your relationship to the Lord. Then he's going to unpack the difference between finding short-term happiness in our status, our accomplishments, our resumes, versus trusting in Jesus his suffering, and resting in our hope and promise of heaven. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. If you're reading this, this clearly gives us the implication or thought that Paul has said some of these things to the church of Philippi before. Possibly in another letter, possibly when he was there with them, maybe on a journey or an area or by word of mouth. But he's repeating some of the same truths over and over and over again. Why? Because he knew. He knew more than anyone else the temptations of success and accomplishments and prominence and offered that are offered by the world versus the hope in Christ. He knew his friends would need this assurance as well. I texted our staff while I was working on this message because as I was preparing this, I, I honestly had this thought. I've been the pastor of Rich Fork now for over 17 years. And if you were a student of mine in student ministry, you've been on this journey with me for 24 years. I would imagine that we've covered a lot over those years. And at times, I feel led to repeat a book study or even a, a scripture or a sermon. Or I've had the same verses attached to a message and you probably begin to think, what on earth could he say that's new? What could he give us that's different? Then I read this in preparation for Philippians today. We may enjoy the fancy things at mealtimes, but it is the basic foods on which we live. 
Preaching and teaching and studying the side issues may be attractive, and these may have their place, but the fundamental truths can never, can neither be spoken nor heard too often for the safety of our souls. That's what's at the heart of David's thirst and hunger. Give me the essentials, the necessities, not one time, not two times, but over and over, his spirit was desperately seeking more. This is the heart of Paul's rejoicing, encouragement, teaching. I'm going to hit, Paul is basically saying, I'm going to repeat one more time who Jesus is, what he's done for us, what he's done for me, and how it changes our lives. The essentials of the faith were worth repeating by David, Jesus, Paul. Therefore, as your pastor, like Paul was to Philippi, to write the same things to you is of no trouble to me. And it is safe for you. So with that said, may we dive into the warning that Paul gives the people first. Verse 2 of chapter 3. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now when Paul says watch out for the dogs, you have to understand that dogs in AD 70 were not a $150 billion industry. Rather, they were dirty, unclean wanderers in neighborhoods and streets. Now, please don't take this to be anti-dog. I have three. Paul is warning the church. Unclean dogs. He's warning the church. Remember, this letter is to be used for teaching and training for the church. Inside the church, there were false teachers who did not belong in the church dogs or evildoers. And then he really steps into the debate when he brings up the mutilation of the flesh. Now there's a great time that you could spend examining this, but there was a debate in the early church in Acts regarding circumcision and one group called the Judaizers strongly believed that if you came to Christ, you must follow a 2,000-year-old tradition as a Jew to be circumcised. But Paul pushes directly against this idea one more time here in Philippi. And here's why. There were teachers, people creeping into the church and distorting the truth of Christ. They were adding to the good news of Jesus Christ. For these false teachers, it was Jesus plus rules, plus regulations, plus circumcision, plus works equals salvation. Yet Jesus in the remainder of the New Testament echoed the gospel of good news that it is faith in Jesus Christ that brings us salvation. It leads to work, as we saw several weeks ago. It shifts our hearts, our souls, our minds towards obedience. Then, and only a way that Paul can do it, he's going to outline his spiritual heritage, his resume, as if to say, hey, I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the thought process because I once had it all. Listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew to the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now to me and you, that may not have sounded like the most impressive spiritual resume, but someone of Jewish heritage, someone that had a religious background of the day would have been wowed. Paul had the most impressive spiritual resume someone of Jewish heritage could claim. He had an impressive beginning. He traces his roots back to his tribe. He has his rank. He has his nationality. He has his lineage. He has his upbringing. He has his standards of following the law. He was zealous. He had confident. He was of high moral standard, standing according to his religious background. Humanly speaking, he had acquired all the assets that anyone could have imagined. This guy is writing from prison though to let his friends know something. If anyone should gain heaven because of their spiritual status, if anyone should, it should be Paul. He had all the credentials, but he is going to call and question his human achievements versus the promises and the hope of Christ. If he were writing this in 2022, he he might say, my mother gave birth to me on a Saturday night and I was in church on Sunday. I attended church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and we could add in 2022, even during COVID. I got every possible Bible translation. I was baptized at 7. I would have been baptized at 5, but my parents held me back a couple years. I've never missed communion. I don't smoke anything or vape. I don't drink. I don't cuss. I don't even use the substitute words for profanity profanity that other Christians say. I go on a mission trip a year. I gave my 10% tithe. I gave faithfully online. I raise my hands at just the right moments in worship. I do really well praying in public. I sing loud, even though my voice isn't great. I make a joyful noise. If I can't attend worship in person, I do it online. I am without blame. My neighbors love me. My children, they even smile on their way to church. And my wife, I can't even begin to tell you how great she is and how perfect our marriage is. Or, if you're single, not even Valentine's Day shakes my faith. I have scripture shirts, mugs, cups. Are you getting the point? My 2022 follower of Jesus game is strong. Paul is saying... Whatever you have done, I've done more. And it does not matter. Paul was really good according to the religious system of the day. His spiritual resume would bring him to the top of any stack of religious resumes if someone were looking. But he didn't know Jesus. Paul had done what we often do in our spiritual journey He had made the traditions of his spiritual heritage what they were not intended to be, a God of their own. We've got to be careful not to make the tradition of worship its own God and find our hope in the emotion of the moment rather than the truths found in what we are declaring. We must be careful not to make 
dropping off our children at church for an hour, the substitute from modeling Jesus in our homes the other 23 hours a day. And I would even add, we can't even make this teaching time in God's Word as a group or on a Sunday morning or whenever you're watching a substitute for daily pursuit of Jesus. And that pursuit meets each of us a little bit differently every day. But Paul didn't have this life-saving, grace-covering relationship with Jesus until one day on a road with a few other folks where the Lord Jesus came to him, confronted him, and offered him forgiveness for his sinful past. He even poured grace over his really impressive spiritual resume. The opening word of verse 7 really points to Acts chapter 9 where we read of Paul's encounter with Jesus and his relationship with Christ. It became one of worship and grace and believing in the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul's resume to be better, more religious, he says it could not be matched. Yet it took a radical roadside appearance from Jesus to radically change his life, to lead him to the daily growing relationship with Jesus. So Paul was stepping out of his religious resume and into a relationship with Jesus. Verse 7, he continues, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, if you want to pause right here, rubbish. This is also known as garbage. Based on the use of the word in this setting, it means dung or manure. Paul says, I count my lofty resume as a pile of manure. And I've gained Jesus. This wording, when read aloud in a church setting with a group of believers, would have received someone saying, did he say that in church? But Paul did then, and it should grab our attention now when he says, all the recognition does not compare to the relationship. All the I'm better than the next guy pales in comparison to I'm the greatest sinner in need of a Savior. If we're not careful, if I'm not careful, I can fall, we can fall into the same routine, the trap of religious comparison, the ranking system of me over you based on what I've done to do or be better than, rather than simply being content to be more like Jesus. This is where we found David in the Psalms, less than, desperate, seeking his most fundamental need to be met. So it is with Paul. His most fundamental spiritual need has been met, but not by all of his accolades or his fact sheet, but by the gift of salvation given through Jesus Christ. Again, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Two weeks ago, I gave you three giant words that really summarize three significant realities for every follower of Jesus. One of those is on display again in this passage. It's the word justification. It's when we trust in Jesus Christ by faith, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ declares over you, you have been forgiven and now you have the right and you have a perfect relationship to a holy God. And be found in Him. Not having, he goes on, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You have not become right. Paul is telling the reader, and he's telling, I think, echoing to himself, Paul, you haven't become right with God from the law, not from the rules, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is not from you making yourself right with God, but God made you right with Himself through Jesus Christ. God has moved on your behalf, He's telling them. He did so for Paul, and He's done so for you. He has moved on your behalf. He continues that I may know Him, Jesus, and the power of His resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul outlines some spiritual benchmarks or goals for us. He says, I want to know Jesus more. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. How do we have this faith like Paul that It's not our resume, but our relationship. He says, you want to know Jesus. J.I. Packer put it well. Once you become aware that your main business here in life is to know Christ, then most of life's problems begin to fall in place. When Paul says he wants to know him, Jesus, he's not implying to know about Jesus or information about Jesus as you would know somebody from history. The truth is, I know many people. I could tell you a lot about people that I, quote, know because I see them in the news or on social media, but I don't really know them. For instance, when I was a camp counselor 25 years ago, I had a brief encounter. I know this is true with Billy Graham at dinner one night. Touched my shoulder. Maybe one of my shoulders, but I never got to know him. I never even got to speak with him, spend time with him, allow him to to impact me on that type of level, nor did he for me. Paul says he is able, he's only able to abandon that long earthly resume that he has because God has made me right with him. And he says, and we can know him. We can have a relationship with Him. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings. Because by knowing Jesus more, then I can rejoice in the power that Jesus has in my life. You can rejoice in the power that Jesus has in your life. 
The power that raised Jesus from the dead is living in each follower of Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, we are to function in this power for His pleasure and His good works in chapter 2. This power helps us to endure hardships. This power guides us to God's grace and His mercy. Paul even goes so far as to say, I want to know Jesus more. I want to experience His power more in my life so that I will be willing to suffer as Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think Paul was excited about the prospect or could he even have anticipated at the beginning of his faith what he would have to endure. But he says, I will share in the suffering because Jesus did. This runs counterculture to popular teachings such as prosperity gospel or health and wealth that followers of Jesus have it all. Everything is perfect. Nothing ever goes wrong. You have more and more abundance financially than you would ever need. This is not biblical teaching. We also don't need to hold a sign over our head every day that says, punch me, I need to suffer today. Yet when we suffer, it allows us to identify with our Savior at our expense for our sin. And we begin to feel the weight He carried. And He creates a moment of contentment even in those moments. For Paul and for us, when we identify that our Savior suffered, it greatly helps us when we suffer. We often speak of knowing Jesus and wanting His resurrection power, but so much of our faith is grown when we release our suffering and it's not done alone. Christ is with us. Suffering produces humility and a spirit of thankfulness. Paul had endured. David had endured. Elizabeth Elliot, a modern-day writer who's passed away, her experience through mountains of pain and loss, she said this about suffering. The first principle is that of the cross. Life comes out of death. I bring God my sorrows. He gives me His joy. I bring Him my losses. He gives me His gains. I give Him my sins. He gives me His righteousness. I bring Him my deaths. He gives me His life. Know Him. Experience His power. Paul says, be willing to suffer. This is all a part of that other big word we saw, sanctification, becoming more like Jesus Christ every day. But Paul's also able to keep his view of suffering in life because he says something else. Verse 11, cling to the promise of eternity. He says this, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, quick rewind to two weeks ago, big three, three big terms, not words from Scripture, but that summarize what happens in Scripture. Justification takes place in a moment through Christ. It's given to us in verse 9 and 10. Sanctification transpires throughout your life until your final breath. We see that in verse 10. And glorification, the promise of eternity and being made whole with Christ, is seen in verse 11. These are important foundations, pictures of our faith that is steady and sure but growing. But the next passage shifts 
now it's, he's going to give us the momentum for what we see in these earlier verses. He's going to give us the momentum for transformation, not simply information. Verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's the heart of this passage. And it really wraps up our examination of Philippians thus far this morning. Paul is saying, forget your failures as you run to Jesus. Forget your past achievements and your trophies. Paul had the resume. He was the most religious, religious, his birthright, his heritage, he had it all. But don't forget that Paul's high standing with his religious leaders came with mixed, mixed in with Paul's persecution of people. Paul was responsible and stood by while the very first Christian was martyred. Yet Paul says, I am forgetting what lies behind me, the failures and the earthly successes. Paul was no longer pursuing this moment, but he was pursuing heaven. How many times, and I don't have an answer to these, but how many times did Paul have to emotionally and spiritually fight off the memories of his sinful past. Murderous actions. How many times did he have to remind himself who he was in Christ? How many times did he fight not feeling worthy to lead others? How many times did Paul want to say or maybe even said to his friend Timothy and Epaphroditus, guys, I don't deserve this. I've got my heritage. I've got my birthright on my side. Why am I going through this? Paul says one thing Paul did. Forget the past. Run toward Christ. Now I love what Paul says. Sounds like two acts. He calls one. Forget the past. Move forward. This happens in unison to Paul. It's not one, then the other. It's it's happening. We've all watched a marathon runner stumble across the finish line or a 100-meter dash end in the runner just leaning forward, pushing out their chest to cross the finish line centimeters ahead of the next runner. This is Paul's picture for us. The further he runs in the faith, the more the failures and achievements begin to fall away. What a power-packed, loaded 14 verses. How do we transfer these truths to help us reach for the one thing, forgetting the past and striving for Christ? A couple of questions that I read this this week while working through this passage. What sin or habit do I need to throw off in order to run this race? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 and 24, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. What do I need to put off and put on? Forget the past. Run to Christ. 
Don't sit and stew in the past. Put on your grace-covered running shoes and sprint to the arms of the eternal promises of Jesus. What sin do I need to leave behind? What habit do I need to begin to know Jesus more? Does Sunday morning need to become only my spiritual introduction to the week? Meaning, do I need to become more faithful in pursuing Jesus and His Word? Paul is saying, I am forgetting as I run. It's getting further in my rear view mirror every single day that I walk with Jesus. My failures, my sins, my past, my pain, my shame, the closer I run to Jesus. Paul is still, even as he's writing from prison, desperate to reach further, to know more, to suffer well, to rejoice in sorrow because all he wanted to do was know Christ and lead others to him. David and the Psalms that we read at the beginning of the day, he was desperate. He was desperate to, to say, I thirst and I'm, I'm anguished. I want to move and move towards the Lord. What about you? Are you drowning in the failures of the past? Therefore missing the opportunities to grow closer to the Lord? Or are you standing in a, quote, spiritual resume rather than trusting and knowing Jesus more? Two final questions I want to pose to you today. These are pretty heavy, and these are for those who are followers of Jesus. Could it be when we read through a passage such as this, and, and out, of, out of Psalms from David and this desperation from Paul and from David, have you been a follower of Jesus for so long? You're no longer desperate to know him more. Paul is teaching us. He has reminded me this week. We should always be hungry and thirsty to know Jesus more. We should continually be in awe of Jesus loving us, suffering for us. Please hear me. Following Jesus is not your spiritual hobby. It's your eternal hope. Another question that I read from different sermons and different people and put it all together, are we more passionate in the pursuit of our greatest hobby as we are our relationship to our Savior, Jesus Christ? What other ventures from our past or what other false idols concerning our future do we devote more energy towards? Paul says, pursue Jesus more with desperation, with hunger, striving to know Him more. Live through His power in our lives and trust in Him for eternity and forgetting our failures and our accomplishments as we run to Jesus. May we be desperate to do these things. Would you pray with me today? God, these words from Paul are loaded with so much meaning for us. 
we could spend five weeks on chapter three alone. I know that full well, but I also know, God, that Paul's teaching, his resume, he comes back at the end of chapter three and say, that's not the resume that matters. What matters is not my recognition, not my resume, not my past, not my sinfulness. What matters is my relationship to Jesus. For those that are watching God, if they do not have a relationship with Jesus, may they know that they can go to you alone. They don't need me. They can simply, as Scripture says, confess their sins before you and you'll be faithful to save them. You will forgive them. You will, in a moment, make them right with you. And then you will begin to work each and every day in and through Jesus in their lives. Until one day, they stand whole for all eternity. God, thank you for Paul being so brutally honest to say, all that stuff is a pile of garbage. But I will do this one thing. Forget the past. Pursue Christ. One motion. Two things. May we do the same. May we put this relationship to Jesus above all things. In Jesus' name.